0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Theory of Enchantment podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Valdry. In today's episode, we got to sit down with an awesome person by the name of Jonathan Haidt. You may know him as he is an American social psychologist and professor of ethical leadership at NYU Stern School of Business. He's also an author, and we talked about several of his books today, but mostly focused on his latest book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Please tune in to this episode as we really dug deep into several interesting topics, including the process of healthy identity formation among adolescents, the pitfalls of social media and their effect on young people's self-esteem, particularly women, and more generally, how to instill purpose and meaning in the up-and-coming generations. I hope you enjoy. So, hi, Mr. Height, how are you?
1: Please call me John.
0: (laughs) John, how are you?
1: I'm fine. How are you, Chloe?
0: I'm doing well. Thank you for joining the Theory of Enchantment podcast. My pleasure. I first ran across your work uh, a while ago, like a couple years ago, when I first read The Righteous Mind, actually. And um, that was my introduction to your work. And then later on, I went to a talk you did in New York. I, b- I believe at a church, actually. Probably the
1: Fifth Avenue Baptist Church, perhaps? Yes, okay. I
0: believe that was the one. And you were, I think the the latest book uh, had just come out and you were speaking about some of the findings that you had discovered uh, in doing mm-hmm. the research. So that was my introduction to your work and I finally recently finished reading The Coddling of the American Mind. And I just want to pick your brain about some of the ideas that were unpacked in the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, The context for developing the book in the first place, and where do we go from here? Great. Let's do it. Awesome. So so let's start at the beginning. And I know we go over this, you go over this in the book, but let's just talk about it for our listeners. Uh, What were some of the trends both in college, on college campuses and throughout parenting that you discovered that sort of provided a catalyst for developing the content of the book?
1: Mm Um, so the trends were these, that I always thought that the academic life was the best life in the world. Mm-hmm. You get to spend your whole life in a university. It's this place set apart. Uh, it's a place where people love ideas, and they explore ideas, and there's humor, and there's a sense of mission and purpose, and there's both lightness and seriousness. So I love being a professor. Mm-hmm. Um, but suddenly, in 2014, and then especially in 2015, it was like, I don't, I don't know what the metaphor is. And it was like some, some new, I don't quite want to say contagion or disease, but it was mm-hmm. just a new, a new worldview, a new moral world. let's say that. A new moral worldview seemed to come in. And it was one that saw ideas as dangerous. It was one that saw people as good versus evil. Mm-hmm. It was very moralistic. And it, it, it first showed itself up with students um, shouting down speakers at Brown University and elsewhere. Uh, with students asking for safe spaces, uh, not against violence, which is, makes sense, but against words that they considered to be violence. And so, and a, a lot of us, we just couldn't understand it. It made no sense to us. And so, Greg Lukianoff, my my co-author and my friend, was was, I think, the first to really offer a diagnosis of what's happening. He came to talk to me in 2014. Uh, to say john what i'm seeing on campus and i I should make clear greg is the president of the foundation for individual rights in education it's a group that has been uh, defending free speech rights for students since the 1990s and they've almost always had to defend free speech rights against administrators who are limiting students speech rights in order to protect the university from liability or bad publicity Mm -hmm. and suddenly in 2014 (laughs) greg found that a lot of the speech issues were driven by students who wanted restrictions on speech books words ideas um, because they thought or at least the argument they made was that people would be harmed by these words or books or speakers and most importantly, what Greg, what Greg brought to this is that Greg is prone to depression, mm. uh, and he learned CBT, or cognitive behavioral therapy, in 2007 when he had a suicidal depression, and he made specific plans to kill himself. Um, but he called 911 at the last moment and, and hospitalized himself. And when he got out, he learned CBT, and you learn to recognize all these cognitive distortions, like catastrophizing, overgeneralizing, black and white thinking. Um, and and so he goes back to his job as the president of FIRE, and then suddenly, in 2013, 2014, he now sees the students doing it. So that's what led to this. It wasn't a gradual shift. It was a sudden, from out of nowhere, mm-hmm. change. Uh, and it wasn't everywhere. It certainly was, it is not everywhere, but it was at lots of different schools. And so, um, so that's what led to our original article in The Atlantic in 2015, where we we offered a, a theory of what was happening. Um, and only then afterwards did things get a lot worse mm. uh, uh, in 2015 through 2017. So that's why Greg and I decided to write the book to really dig in. like. This is really complicated. What are all the trends that are causing this to happen?
0: And since the publication of this book, have things gotten worse or better in your estimation?
1: So the um, if you if you look at the most spectacular events, that is the shout downs. Uh, that's what really garnered a lot of uh, press attention, especially right wing media l- loved this stuff because it really makes universities look bad. When you see students shouting to stop someone from speaking, was mm-hmm. really embarrassing for the universities. So there was a lot of that in uh, 2014 through 2017. Uh, and that has gone way down, mm-hmm. um, in part because universities have gotten a lot more careful, a lot smarter about it. Uh, also in part because I think when around the time of the Trump election and his first when he was first inaugurated, that's when the actual violence happened. Mm-hmm. So there, there hasn't been much physical violence, thank God, mm-hmm. but what physical violence there was on campus around speech was mostly, it was at Berkeley and Middlebury and Evergreen and, and a few places, but that was all in the months after Trump. So my point is that the shout downs and the violence uh, have, have have decreased, okay. so that's very fortunate. But the, 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 I would say things have gotten worse in the sense okay. that it, it now is much more the norm that you have to really be careful what you say. Okay. And, you know, you can say, of course, we should be more considerate. And there is something to politically correct speech in that we do need to update our language. And the jokes that were okay about gay people or mm-hmm. obese people, you know, it, it is progress to say, no, we don't make jokes about that anymore. So right. it, this is complicated. but. The general sense that we're walking on eggshells, Mm -hmm. that anyone can be called out at any moment, means that we can't trust each other. Mm -hmm. And it's no longer that much fun to be a professor if you can't trust your students, and students can't trust professors, and students can't trust each other. And there are bureaucratic formats, there are bureaucratic innovations that encourage us to report each other. Mm -hmm. There are literally signs in the bathrooms here at at NYU telling students how to report me or anyone Mm -hmm. if they are offended.
0: Right so i want to uh, think a bit uh, about mr Gregg's uh insights bec- which stemmed in part from his engaging with cbt and his depressive episode um because i wonder how much of what's happening is the product of a breakdown in healthy identity formation and i know that you touch upon that in the book yeah. but i wonder if if these have been cycles throughout history. I wonder if there are examples that we can look toward that also show mm-hmm. breakdown in identity formation. And I know you talk about, for example, witch hunts yeah. in Salem, Massachusetts, and in the history of America in general. And I wonder if, if there's any w- sort of wisdom that we can glean from studying what's happening in perhaps, for example, adolescents not feeling mm-hmm. a <laughs> sense of uh belonging or a sense of uh, a sense of in general purpose yes
1: i think that's a big part of it Mm -hmm. um what so my own research for you know your listeners generally don't know who i am Um, i'm a social psychologist i study morality and my research on morality has convinced me or shown me that um, human beings evolved for religion we are a religious species wherever Mm -hmm. you go we have religious practices rituals are similar uh, the sort of the psychology ritual is very similar. Uh, I'm a big fan of the sociologist, Emile Durkheim, mm-hmm. who analyzed societies um, in terms of the, that groups have a reality, religion functions to strengthen groups. And Durkheim was very wise about the ways that formal religions can satisfy our needs for structure and belonging. Um, but when formal religions uh, retreat, as they were retreating in the late 19th century, early 20th, when he was writing in France, something has to replace them. Mm-hmm. And if 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 something is not provided, then people will find something. Mm-hmm. And Durkheim gives us the word anomie, which literally means normlessness, a-nomie, normlessness. Oh, okay. So if you can imagine being part of a society in which there's a general sense of who we are, um, there's a general sense of what's happening because we all watch the same three television networks as mm-hmm. happened in the late 20th mid 20th century. And then you can imagine going into the 21st century where now with social media and the internet, any common fabric, any common understanding is shredded. Mm -hmm. And people can live in different worlds that have nothing to do with each other and don't have a common basis in reality, uh, or shared reality, I should say. So I do think that people feel uh, bereft by far the fastest growing category of religion in the United States is spiritual but not religious. Mm -hmm. What that basically means is people who who do not see themselves as Christian or Jewish or Muslim necessarily but are looking for something, a sense of meaning. So I do think that many students have gravitated to political movements, be it around the environment, you know, uh, global warming, fighting racism, uh, poverty and inequality. These are all great things to work on, but when you do it with a religious fervor, mm-hmm. at least my claim is, you're forming a religion around uh, around some proposition or some sacred cause. You cannot think straight about it. You cannot make mm-hmm. trade-offs. You cannot examine policies and say, "Well, what are the costs and you know costs and benefits?" So, I do think that that is that is that what you were getting at in terms of like the sort of the the like the need for a sense of purpose.
0: Somewhat. I also think that there's something to be said about the fact that if so, if you were to compare this moment that we're in now to the sixties, for example, Mm. during the civil rights movement and the way religion played a role in shaping a lot of the, uh, rhetoric that was coming from say, Dr. King, there was a difference in the sense that religion took the form of making us aware of that. We could transcend certain, uh, categories, I guess, whereas today (laughs) the categories themselves are the basis of of religious style political movements, mm. and so it's very different, and it takes on an essentializing effect. Yes,
1: as a result. I know. I think that's crucial. Uh, no, let's, let let's let's really dig into this because I think that's okay. one of the most interesting aspects of this. Um, so you're right to point out that the '60s was a previous time. There have been two waves of sort of student. A- well, actually, no. There, so there was the big wave of of campus protest in the 1960s there was a second wave of sort of of political correctness in universities in the late 80s early 90s but that was as much faculty driven that was about diversifying the canon and changing mm-hmm. the reading list it wasn't big waves of student protest so the the the, the huge student protest that we've had in tw- beginning in 2015 um yes the precursor was the 60s but the students then were really tough they were not saying um they were not saying oh you know uh, ban this speaker because it's traumatizing mm-hmm. they were saying they did shout down some speakers but it was it was uh, it was a united campaign for what they saw as justice it was often right. anti-racist so they were tough they were strong they made sacrifices um and they they came at it with a strong moral conviction backed up by a a, a willingness to take risks and sacrifice mm-hmm. um, whereas the student movements now are characterized more by fragility or at least self Professed fragility. Um, one, you know, I heard one, one administrator said uh, the students contacted him to ask. Well, so he said, "Well, we're going on strike on Friday. I, is that okay? Do I have your permission, or will I be penalized?" And he had to say that. Well, you know, I, I think we have a different understanding of what it means to go on strike. <laughs> um, students, young people today have been vastly overprotected. This is a whole other area for us to talk about. Um, so the difference with the students today, one is that they come in with very high rates of anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Um, they come in having been vastly oversupervised. We basically deny we've been denying kids uh, opportunities for independent action and, and, and thought, thought a- action, I should say. Since the nineteen nineties, we acted as though if kids go out on their own to play, they'll be abducted, and mm-hmm. the parents should be therefore be uh, referred to child protective services. So the Students' Day are very different from the 1960s. Um, And now to bring, now you you mentioned Dr. King. Um, I think this is absolutely crucial that, while there was tension in the civil rights movement, as I understand it, between those who wanted to use more aggressive forms, including violence, Mm -hmm. and those who were committed Mm -hmm. to nonviolence. And uh, I think that was absolutely crucial. And I think the role of Christianity in the movement is absolutely vital. I think this is one of the key, probably the biggest key, or one of them, to to the Civil Rights Movement's success, um, is this, is, well, in the book what we call we say there's two different kinds of identity politics. You can either unite people uh, by the fact that we are all human, we have a shared humanity, Mm -hmm. uh, and let's draw a circle around all of us, and within that circle now, let's talk about who is not being given dignity and rights, Mm -hmm. or you can unite people against a common enemy. So we call that common enemy identity politics. It's what the Nazis did. Uh, It's what the Hutus did in Rwanda. Um, It's the easiest trick in the book, just say they're the cause of our problems, let's all unite against them. Mm-hmm. And that's what I see happening on campus now. I don't see any sign of common humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, I see it, it seems mostly to be common enemy, identity politics, which means it's polarizing, uh, which means it's not likely to work, uh, and which means I think it's even bad for the people doing it. Mm-hmm. You take college students in these elite, really safe, progressive, uh, collegial places, and you tell them, you are marginalized here. People hate you here. Um, it's us versus them. Judge people by their race and gender, and then treat them accordingly. Like, no, wait a second. What happened to the whole twentieth century's? You know, the lessons that we learned in the twentieth century.
2: Yeah.
0: Do you do you know where that where that trend came from? Because it it does seem sort of random. The us versus them construct. Well, no, I, at yeah. least, I guess it was yeah. part a product of polarization and political polarization in the country in general. Mm-hmm. But uh, as you as you show in the book, it's sort of started happening with the iGen. Yeah. And so it's just it's just interesting to wonder if it was an organic development or if or just sort of how that process happened.
1: Yeah. So so my general approach as a psychologist who who studies evolution and anthropology I'm a cultural psychologist. I think that there is human nature, um, uh, and human nature is tribal. We evolved to do us versus them. That's why we have sports. We do our politics in the same way. Mm -hmm. So there is a kind of a default kind of human nature. But at the same time, I'm also a cultural psychologist, and human nature is amazingly flexible in that the the kinds of social relationships we build are not constrained. It's not like we have to do one thing. So feudalism is very easy. You find that around the world. Mm-hmm. Democracy is not. Democracy is very rare. Um, so we have a lot of flexibility. But some forms of social interaction, some forms of social structure, are are easy, and you don't have to work to do them. So feudalism is is one. Uh, you know, us versus them warfare is, is one. Those are easy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Whereas to say, if someone strikes you, um, uh, turn the other cheek with love in your heart, mm-hmm. that is hard. Yeah. That is not the default. Right. But we're capable of it. But we need a lot of help to do it. And encouragement. It's hard. Yeah. And so, uh, so you know, what what the civil rights leaders accomplished is is just stunning. Um, and, and I was just in South Africa uh, with my family. And again, you know to go to the Apartheid Museum and you see what Mandela accomplished and how easily things could have slid into, right. into tribal warfare and, and sometimes did, but mm-hmm. the fact that he was able to guide it through with that inspiring force of love and his absolute commitment to building a unified South Africa, I mean I'm getting chilled just talking yeah. to you remember I mean, the museum is so powerful. Um, so you asked where it came, where it came from. My answer would be human nature makes us disposed to it. Okay, That's one piece. Second piece is rising po- uh, political polarization and rising anger ramps that up. Mm-hmm. Third piece, rising depression and anxiety makes people see more threats in the world. Mm-hmm. And it places universities like Brown or, or Yale or Middlebury. I mean, these are among the safest, most supportive spaces in this country. Mm-hmm teach students or to get students to feel that these are threatening um, takes a lot of work, but they were, some of the students I think were successful in doing that. And then the fourth piece is that there are specific intellectual movements um, that have been around in universities for a while. Um, there are certain forms of of thinking, I, I maybe this is a complicated topic for us to discuss here, but it goes by the name of intersectionality is one mm-hmm. of the names. Um, you know, there are all kinds of intellectual movements that have they're based on certain valid insights, but they can be developed in a way that really ramps up the us versus them Mm -hmm. thinking. Mm -hmm. And so as I see it, there were certain ideas, there were certain departments that really taught students to see everything as power structures. Everything is one group oppressing another. Life is a zero sum battle for control, of limited resources. And there are parts of life that are like that, but in a modern, liberal democracy it's an amazingly rapidly expanding pie and we're hurting students if we tell them no no don't don't look for cooperative relationships it's fixed you know zero-sum you know if if, you know see people as either oppressors or victims Mm -hmm. so I do think that all these things came together around 2014 2015 to produce, um, a, pr- to produce a student movement that was supported by some elements of the faculty but not others um, on elite university campuses primarily. It was not happening at the community colleges or in most of the countries, mostly at the elite schools in the Northeast and the West Coast and Chicago and a few other places. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, I think, a multifactorial causal story that just all came together around 2014, 2015.
0: To what extent do you think that this may be built into or an inevitable sort of bug of the democratic system in the sense that once civilizations go through a capitalist phase where industry is booming and you have massive wealth, Mm -hmm. there can be, it seems to me, there can be a a sense of emptiness (laughs) that is felt by the people because there's nothing, there's nothing sort of to aim towards anymore. Once you quote-unquote have everything and so how do we deal with that dilemma of freedom
1: yeah that is such an interesting idea um there are i love um research and theories about like cyclical factors in history or ways that something good something good can often bring about its own demise Mm -hmm. and so as a first pass i would say um, free market systems are so amazingly powerful in generating wealth uh, this was the story of the West and then you know the the, um, the Asian Tigers you know Singapore Taiwan Korea uh, and now even China and one thing we know from research from the World Value Survey is that as countries achieve prosperity and peace their values shift in a very predictable direction it's a wonderful direction and it's a progressive direction that is The generation that works really hard, the generation that is poor—you know—so my my wife is a Korean American. Her parents were raised during the Korean War, and um, I mean, life was incredibly hard, and the country was dirt poor. And that whole generation has an incredible work ethic, but they didn't care that much about human rights, gay rights, women's rights, Mm -hmm. the environment. I mean, they were coming up from poverty, Mm -hmm. and they had an authoritarian government originally. But an amazing thing happens when they once they generate wealth, values change, and the next generation wants democracy. Mm-hmm. They don't want an authoritarian dictator. They begin to care about women's rights, gay rights, animal rights, human rights, the environment. So you get this very consistent movement. Wherever wealth and safety go up, you get a shift towards these progressive values and towards a more humane life, so that's great. But now your question suggests, well, is it linear, or is right. there? Is it like, okay, you know, when a couple of generations get to enjoy that, but are there conditions that undercut that? Yeah. and I think that there are, um, because I believe that we evolved for religion. We evolved; we have needs to be part of a of a, of a religious or devotional community, um, devoted to something. And as formal religions have lost their hold on us, informal religions can become more powerful. But these informal religions did not evolve over time, mm. so they're often quite inhumane. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not. You know, the Christianity as we have it in America is very, very benign. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know, sects that need to attract adherents evolve over time and they get very nice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, so, that's yeah. I, so, I do think that we, we have a gigantic emptiness mm-hmm. uh, that we're trying to fill. And we haven't even brought in social media, which tends right. to shred our trust in almost everything, right. and unite us in small groups uh, that that compete within the group for who can be more outraged.
0: So yes, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about social media. Uh, I know that there is a there is a quote in the in the book from Facebook's first president, I believe it was, that really made me give yeah. pause because it was very explicit about the intention to sort of like manipulate human emotion, um, and have dopes li- or, or adrenaline rushes or dopamine rushes mm-hmm. be uh, built into the system of Facebook so that we will become addicted That's to sites right. like Facebook. Um, so I know you give a lot of suggestions in terms of raising kids and, and, uh, limiting screen time uh, to two hours a day and such, but what, role in sort of this conversation about religion and meaning and Mm -hmm. and spirituality what role do you think social media plays in that because i think there are a lot of questions to be asked about adolescents uh addiction to social media right
1: that's right that's right so let's okay let's let's talk a bit about social media Mm because it's 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 central to a lot of the difficulties that we're having and so um okay there there are so many things that social media does, and clearly some of them are good. Mm-hmm. In general, in the history of humanity, when we find a new way to connect people, that's good. The telephone, the printing press, the radio, um, postal service—these are generally good things. So I don't want to—I don't want to make it sound like it's simple. It's not simple, but I think that the two. There are several big downsides, and the two big downsides are so vast, mm-hmm. so big that I think, I fear that social media may be incompatible with a successful democracy. Okay. And what I mean by that is this, that to have a successful democracy is very, very hard. Um, Plato said that democracy is the second worst form of government because it inevitably decays into tyranny. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have, democracy literally means rule by the demos, by the people, by mm-hmm. the group, the crowd, the mob even. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, so Athenian democracy, I, I don't know that much about it, so I shouldn't be too specific. But Plato's view was that it's a mess. It okay. doesn't work. And the founding fathers of, of the United States read Plato, and they were very clear. They did not want a democracy mm-hmm. uh, because they feared that—and you and they wrote a lot about faction. You'll always have factions inflamed by passions. You'll have demagogues who just say lies to the people and mm-hmm. get them angry, and you, terrible things result. Right. Um, so we don't have. Uh, uh, this country was not founded as a democracy. It was founded as a republic with certain democratic features, uh, and it was a very carefully balanced contraption to to limit the damage that 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 mo- mob passions would do. Mm-hmm. Bring social media in, you change the fundamental settings of society. Okay. There's a passage in the Federalist Papers where they I forget who which one wrote it, but it, the gist of it is well, now you know. People will be inflamed, passions will be inflamed, but because our country is so vast, it will take weeks before the news filters out to the you know to the distant parts right. of the republic. Well, that's not true anymore. Yeah. So, in a lot of ways, um, democracy aggravates the long known flaws and problems of I'm sorry, social media mm-hmm. exacerbates the long known problems. You know, metaphor I use is like. You know, imagine if God decided one day to just reach into the universe and triple the gravitational constant. Let's just make gravity three times stronger. Let's just see what happens, <laughs> and what would happen. You and I would instantly we'd fall to the ground yeah. by the force of gravity. The ceiling would probably cave in on us, maybe okay. not in a steel building, but in a wooden building, it would all cave in. Yeah. Uh, and within a couple of days or weeks, we'd be sucked into the sun. Uh, so, yeah. it would, you know, it would not be good. Yeah. And in the same way, I think what happened around 2006 when Facebook went, you know, opened up to the world, um, and, and it's not just Facebook, it's Twitter, it's mm-hmm. it's all of them, um, is we changed the fundamental parameters of sociality so that in a sense we're more connected, but it's not authentic connection. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's connecting in a way that you can now show off to others. Mm-hmm. It makes us inauthentic and makes us... Um, all f- It forces us, especially kids, to be brand managers, not mm-hmm. human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, it brings out the worst in a lot of people. Um, so I think that I think that Facebook, I'm sorry, not just Facebook, I think social media um, might, given, given that there wasn't much margin of error before, it's hard to have a successful democracy. And we did a pretty good job of it in the 20th century. Uh, despite all our flaws, we were really making progress on gay rights, civil rights, women's, I mean, if you look at where we were in 1900 and compare where right. we got to in 2000, it's astonishing the progress we made in our democracy and in, in expanding expanding rights to everyone. Um, so I do fear that social media is incompatible with democracy and that American democracy might actually fail. We might have catastrophic political failures in the next 20 or 30 years. Now let me just add on the second piece. I'm sorry, sure. I'm li- like talking stuff, but this is like, I'm so passionate about <laughs> no, this. I'm no, so no, upset yeah. about this. So add to the, so we've got these known, problems with democracy that social media makes worse and of course the you know the platforms they say well we want to be the public square we want to foster good discussions well they're not doing that they're fostering horrible toxic discussions okay now here's the second problem which really amplifies the first Um, there is a gigantic wave of depression and anxiety that hit teenagers especially girls around 2012 in all the countries I've looked at Um, so if you look at the rates of anxiety and depression Um, Girls always have higher rates than boys beginning at puberty. That's always been the case Um, But the rates are relatively stable in general until around 2011 2012 2013 and uh, So if listeners if you go to uh, thecoddling.com, that's the website for the book and you go to Solutions better mental health um, I've been compiling every study. I can find all the statistics. I can find from the US the UK Australia Canada and New Zealand in all of those countries, except New Zealand, New Zealand is three years delayed, but in all the other countries, um, the rate of everything bad for mood disorders for boys goes up sometimes, sometimes not, um, around 2012. For girls, it's like a hockey stick. For girls, it just goes up sharply. Uh, the rate of self-harm, the rate at which teenage girls are, are sent to hospital because they've cut themselves, is up, uh, I think, 70 or 80%. No, I'm sorry, I'm getting the numbers confused. For, young, for preteen girls, it's up 180%, it's nearly tripled. Uh, 10 to 14 year old girls didn't used to cut themselves before 2012, and now in the US, Canada, and the UK, That, that I have numbers from those three countries, the girls go shooting up right around 2012. So it's not something about America, okay. it's not the Great Recession, mm-hmm. which would have affected the millennials, not Gen Z. So we should be clear. Um, the, the mental health crisis hits Gen Z. Gen Z is kids born in 1996 and later. Mm-hmm. So these, these were the kids who got social media in middle school and early high school. The millennials did not get social media until college or maybe the end of high school. Mm-hmm. And I think teenage, the teenage years are so hard, and especially for girls. Middle school is awful for most people, but especially yeah. girls. You, if you get social media, it, just, it, it has a lot of effects that are, hit girls a lot harder. So I think that um, social media is devastating a generation, especially the girls. Uh, and as these depressed and anxious and more fearful and more fragile generation, as they enter universities and now the workplace, they're bringing these anxieties. They're not, it's harder for them to cooperate. They yeah. see more threats. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, I, I think these two problems are intersecting and I think the problems of our democracy are gonna get worse as we get a generation that is more anxious.
0: Why is there a three-year delay for New Zealand?
1: Two reasons. One is that New Zealand—it's a very isolated country. Um, it's physically far from everything. It's a small country. Um, Australia is a little bit has traditionally been a little better connected. But both of those countries are, are obviously off the beaten path. Mm-hmm. And if you look at um, uptake of social media, so there's some reason to think that if you look at at what a, the crucial thing is, at, at what year did most teenagers begin um, being active on social media every day and the United States, it's around 2012. Okay. So it, I can't get good stats for the other countries, but anecdotally it seems as though in terms of market penetration, you know, when did every when did every teenager get a smartphone? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, America is a little wealthier than the other countries. Um, on average, we're going to get our, our teenagers are going to get smartphones a year or two ahead of Britain, let's say, sure. and then maybe th- two or three or four years ahead of, New Zealand, Sure, that's one thing. The other piece of this, I don't want to dwell too much on social media because the other big piece of this is overprotection. Okay. And so the normal way that kids develop is your parents provide... A secure home base. They they satisfy your attachment needs, but the whole point of that is then you can go off and explore. You go off and you try things without your parents, mm-hmm. without any adult supervision, ideally. And kids used to do that until the nineties. Mm-hmm. So if you ask, you know, I'm 55. If you ask, uh, what, uh, I, well, how old are how old are you, if I may ask, or I'm what you 26. You're? Okay, so you're a millennial. Yeah. When you were where did you grow up? New Orleans. Okay, so in New Orleans, when you were growing up, at what age could you go out with your friends and no parental supervision?
2: I don't
0: know, 13, maybe, 12.
1: Okay, so for you it was already pretty late. Whereas had you been 10 or 15 years older, it probably would have been age 7 or 8. Yeah. That's when most people were let out. Or
0: maybe I just don't remember. (laughs) Well, if you
1: you, know, when you ask people to remember their childhood, like for me it's like – in third grade, my friend, my friend Krista and I, we would ride our bicycles all over town. Right. We would build forts. We would mm-hmm. get in rock fights with other groups of kids. Yeah. You know where we had rules. Like there were rules. It wasn't you know right, that right, right. savage, but it was, <laughs> but you know it was a little dangerous. Yeah. But we had to judge risk for ourselves. Sure. And we would get in conflicts, but we had to work it out for ourselves. Sure. Whereas my kids growing up in New York City public schools, they're told on the playground, don't run on the playground because someone mm-hmm. might get hurt. Uh, if anyone cries, an adult will come over to see what's going on, who did what. They're there to settle things. Right. The kids are being starved of opportunities for conflict. They're being starved of small risks. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we did to kids in America and Canada, it's very clear. Uh, the UK does it a little less, but they're, they're doing it now. Okay. And New Zealand is the only country I found where they still say, let the kids climb trees. In fact, there was like when I was there, I was reading articles, um, you know, like a school will ban tree climbing. (laughs) But then the parents will say, no, no, let our kids climb trees. We want them to toughen up. Yeah. So New Zealand, I think, is the healthiest country that I've been to in a long time.
0: Okay. So it's not necessarily just a delay, they may have actual things in place that will, that will, Provide a barrier to the mm-hmm. exactly negative effects of social media. Well, that's
1: right. The, so the, you know, the subtitle of our book was, well, the, the title is The Coddling of the American Mind. Now, we mm-hmm. didn't make it up. It was made up by an editor at The Atlantic originally, and we were uncomfortable with it because it seems to be criticizing the kids. But as we thought about it, coddling means overprotection. If you coddle someone, mm-hmm. you're you are protecting them. You're uh, saying you don't have to learn the consequences of your behavior. We'll protect you. We'll care for you. So um, so the coddling is what's happening in mm-hmm. a lot of Western countries. Now it's in part just as you get wealthier and have fewer kids, mm-hmm. which tend to go together. Um, when, you, you know, when I was growing up, there were a number of families with three, four, or five kids in them, mm-hmm. and now they're very few. Mm-hmm. So if you have a lot of kids, they go outside and they play with other kids. Right. But now that there aren't that many kids around, and most kids are only, you know there's one, one kid in a family or two, mostly. Um, so for a lot of reasons, we are overprotecting our kids. And in New Zealand, they are not coddling their kids. Mm-hmm. They understand anti antifragility. They understand kids need to take risks in order to grow strong.
0: So you give a lot of advice on better parenting tips that would maybe reverse this trend, like free play um, and such. I'm curious, though, given the, the fact that uh, there's a lack of people are just more reli- less religious in general yeah. probably parents are also less religious in general but given the fact that we are we are wired to be religious or wired to be spiritual what advice would you give to parents to fulfill the spiritual needs which may inevitably arise mm. of their of their kids
1: that's a really tough one i don't have i don't have good advice on that okay. one <laughs> um, i think it is important for kids to be raised in a world where there there is a strong moral compass mm-hmm and so um i know there was a move i know i noticed when I, m- my kids were born i noticed a lot of kids with a lot of parents would say to their kids not that was right or wrong but they say well, now was that a wise choice or an mm-hmm. unwise choice like there was a hesitancy to use moral language mm-hmm. um so I, th- I think kids need to be raised in a in a stable moral world with a sense that there is right and wrong I think um, sort of moral relativism or an idea that, well, it's up to you and right. uh, whatever you want is bad for kids. Um, it's hard to do that on your own. Kids, by the time they're seven, eight or nine, are paying much more attention. They're learning more from outside the family, than from inside, so it's very, it's very hard to make a decision yourself and just raise your kids a certain way. Uh, it's often said that the two main ways you influence your kids are, one, you give them their genes and that, that shapes a lot of their personality. And two, you pick the community in which they grow up in, and then that shapes a lot of their values. Um, so you want to look for a, a healthy community. Um, you know, research shows stable communities with high rates of marriage are really mm-hmm. good for kids, and mm-hmm. places that are more unstable are, are less good for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know how to fill that spiritual hole. Okay, what I can say, I can give some very specific advice about social media. Mm-hmm. Um, which is what I've learned both in writing the book and since then, is it's not screen time per se, which is so bad. Um, it's specifically social media is really what, what is damaging the girls in particular. Okay. So so I think, um, I think no kid should have a social media account until they're 16. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand 16 is, uh, I'm, you know, I think eventually we'll get there because I think the evidence that it's causing depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicide is getting pretty strong. So I think eventually we'll have regulation to get there. But for now at least what I'm focused on is get it out of middle schools Don't let any kid have a social media account until they're in high school Mm -hmm. Um, Just get it out of middle schools entirely So I would urge anyone listening to this if you have kids Do not let them have a social media account until they're done with eighth grade And it'll be hard for you to do this But if you talk with the principal of your school They all know they all see the problems um, talk with them, try to get them to make the suggestion to the other parents. Talk with the parents of your kids' friends because if there's a few kids who are off social media, then your kid can stay off. But if your kid's the oh, only one, it's very painful. It's very difficult.
0: Well, it's interesting because my I have little sisters and they're fourteen years old and they're okay. twins, and my parents, my parents did not give them, did not allow them to have a cell phone. The only way they communicate is through email. and um, or the only social sort of mm-hmm. platform they do is through email and it's interesting to see them to notice their like excitement about email because it's the only mm-hmm. social mm-hmm. platform they have yeah. and so when they first got their emails they were so excited and I don't remember being that excited when I first got my email
1: that's right we get jaded we, we, we you know we take things for granted yeah um, so um, you know again those who have kids my suggestion w- so but let me t- tell me this about your your, your siblings are they allowed out? Are they allowed to like go places if they don't yeah. have a cell phone? Okay. At what age were they allowed out?
0: I don't know, but I I, I don't know the answer to that actually. Okay. But I think younger than us, than myself okay. actually. Okay. Good. So my Good. parents got better at that,
1: I think. Okay. <laughs> so there's a so what I did with my daughter, uh, who's now nine, uh, because she wanted to be more independent. Uh, but living in New York City, which is actually quite safe, but you still, you, f- you you panic if your kid doesn't come home when they said they're going to come home. Mm-hmm. So there's this wonderful product. It's called the Gizmo. It was called the Gizmo Watch or the Gizmo Gadget. But it's a it's a it's a it's a watch that is just a telephone that calls three numbers. Mm-hmm. And I got that for my daughter, and it's fantastic because I can send her out on errands, and she has this little watch, and I can actually track it. I can see on a map. So I never have to panic. I never have to worry. I know where she is, and you know she goes out to buy something, and there's some problem. She calls me, Daddy. What do I do? If, yeah. You know. Now, of course, maybe she should just work it out herself. Maybe I'm still <laughs> helicoptering here, but at least um, um, e- being in touch with your kid, if you're giving them independence, is is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this, but but keeping her off social media is a really good thing.
0: Do you think there's any connection between the negative effects of social media and some of the uh, mass shootings we've seen over the past few months?
1: Well, yes, clearly. Um, what we, I should say clearly, we don't know. But what, we, what seems to be the case is that these mass shooters, especially those who leave manifestos, generally are they're now in an ecosystem of ideas that concentrates white supremacist, violent, racist ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm collaborating with a wonderful researcher at the University of Southern California named Morteza Degani, and he and his lab did this amazing research project. They looked at tweets from uh, Baltimore. There was a time in Baltimore when there were, there were protests that turned violent. And they looked at tweets, and they were able to figure out from the content of the tweets which hours were more likely to have arrests. Mm-hmm. When did things get more violent? And the cool thing they discovered is it's not just tweets that show that a person sees this as a moral conflict Mm -hmm. that's necessary to have because a lot of violence is morally motivated it is you are fighting what you think is evil Mm -hmm. and you are standing up for good and sometimes that requires force Uh, and so you know protesters for civil rights protesters for um you know national freedom movements and racists who think their country is being overrun by foreigners all of these are Moral sentiments. I don't mean to say they're right. I mean mm-hmm. to say they're motivated by the same psychology, by the mm-hmm. psychology of morality. Mm-hmm. What Morteza found is that it's not just seeing it in moral terms. The other crucial factor is the perception that everyone in your network sees it the same way. I see. And so if you're in a social network where people are saying, well, you know, immigration has some bad things, but also some good things. Well, right. you know, that, it's going to be a lot harder to say. Well, yeah, let's kill them. Right. Whereas if you're in a network in which people say, well, they're invading, and then someone says, yeah, and they're out producing us, yeah, they're you know they're coming here to have their anchor babies or whatever it is they say, um, it's that perception of uniformity that seems to push a lot of men, especially into violence. So I think you know again, it's too, a little too early to say, but it seems quite likely that the mere existence of a place like 8chan or before or 4chan, all these places, um, if not for those, these shootings. M- quite probably would not have happened
0: so do you think that perhaps the the idea behind kicking off some of these folks from mainstream social media platforms might be ill-advised because of that because it forces a self-selecting group of people that's all the same to be in one on one particular platform yeah
1: that is possible so this is really a a crucial empirical question and empirical just means we need evidence it's a factual Mm -hmm. matter it's not a matter of opinion so you know, And this goes back to the, the long debate over free speech. In the United States, we've always said, you're allowed to hate people. It's not illegal to hate people. And if you wanna say that you hate someone, we're not gonna arrest you. Whereas in Europe and in Canada, they have hate speech laws, you can be arrested mm-hmm. for saying things. And there's been a long debate as to which one is which one actually, you know, if you push people underground, make them feel like victims, well, boy, are they now energized? Right. So I don't know what the answer to that question was before social media, mm-hmm. and it's possible that with social media, the answer is now very different. I don't know which right. way. So the process you're suggesting that if you if you, if we're quick to ban people from Facebook and Twitter, do they just then migrate onto other platforms that concentrate hate and validate? this their narrative that seems quite possible Mm -hmm. so if we are in a world in which it is not possible to shut down chan or other formats if we're in a world where it's not possible to shut them down then i think we have to think very carefully about about this on the other hand you know youtube is a very powerful recruitment tool it was true for isis and it's true for for the white supremacist movements so you know, it's like, do we let, I just don't know. I don't know. But I'm hopeful that there are a lot of researchers in psychology and media studies who are trying to figure out that, that question.
0: Okay. That's very interesting. Um, I had a question about the connection. I don't know if there is one, but it's just an interesting thought exercise because it seems to me that the rise in anxiety and depression has manifested itself in a specific way in young women. But, but I've noticed a trend with regards to these mass shootings; they tend to be young men, yes. and I wonder if if there's yep. a role that anxiety and depression is playing uh, in this manifestation of really uh, strong aggression, mm-hmm. as opposed to, in the case of women, uh, suicide and self harm yeah. attempts.
1: Yes. So, <clears throat> so I I agree with your general premise, but I'll just I'll just make a couple points from psychology. So one is that. Uh, before puberty they're not the sex differences in psychopathology are not that large okay but when puberty hits girls go way up on what are called internalizing disorders that is they they uh, make themselves miserable they internalize issues so anxiety and depression rise with puberty their relations to to hormonal factors and they fluctuate so so anxiety and depression are higher in in teenage girls than in teenage boys and those are, I believe, clearly driving a lot of the self-harm and the suicide. Boys, on the other hand, when they hit puberty, they develop higher rates of what are called externalizing disorders. Mm-hmm. Their, their, their illness or the bad thinking, however you want to put it, manifests itself externally. That is, they take up alcohol, mm-hmm. uh, uh, crime, violence, delinquency. So delinquency is overwhelmingly male. Mm-hmm. And so something is happening where... Now, I don't know that... My guess is that overall rates of delinquency are down okay. because crime has been plummeting. Um, and it's important to note that you know the girls are spending huge amounts of time on social media. The boys are spending huge amounts of time on video games. Okay. Now, <clears throat> a lot of people think, oh, well, this might be the cause of it. Um, I... Um, in reviewing the work on on the effects of devices on mental health i got into a, a bit of a debate with a couple of experts on video games and i learned from them i think they you know they schooled me that the that there are a lot of moral panics mm-hmm. and there was a moral panic over video games in the 90s and the evidence that video games cause violence is weak we is weak at best i'm not mm-hmm. saying it has no effect but it's not a, it doesn't seem to be a big factor okay so just playing video games doesn't seem to be so bad. Now, it, it locks them up. It, it, they don't do much else. A lot right. get addicted. So I'm not saying it's okay for them to spend eight hours a day on video games. It's not. But the video games themselves don't seem to be a, the major problem. Furthermore, what I learned in reviewing all the research on anxiety and depression is that the boys are not really up very much. They are up somewhat. You, oh, okay. you know, counseling centers and colleges, they are seeing more boys, but they're seeing a lot more girls. Okay. So it is possible that... the the, the, the anxiety and depression matter here but anxiety and depression don't make people aggressive and violent against others so i don't think it's the i don't think it's that rather um, i think what we're seeing is more um uh anomie disconnection Mm -hmm. uh, um, no sense of meaning boys are much boys are much more easily led astray um a lot of religious practice. I, I read this wonderful book called *Spirit and Flesh* by James Alt. It's a it's a mm-hmm. portrait of a of an of an event of a Baptist, a very religious Baptist church in Massachusetts. And the point he makes there, I've ne- I'll never forget. He says, you know, a lot of people think that these fundamentalist Christian, or these evangelical Christian sects are trying to control women, mm-hmm. but actually, if you look at what they're doing. The problem for a community is not controlling women. Mm. The women are gonna behave more or less responsibly. Mm -hmm. The problem is the men. Mm. How do you get men to get a job and support a family? That's the challenge. Mm. And so men easily get off the beaten path. If you let young men just play video games and do drugs all day, they'll do it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's more a problem that these devices and the electronic uh, things they, they do put them into communities of, of a sort, but they mm-hmm. take them away from contact with girls and women. I don't know enough about the incel movement, this this okay. idea of, of boys who feel they can't get sex and they somehow are owed it. So mm-hmm. I don't know enough about the incel movement to, to comment. But I would say that girls are doing terribly in the sense of anxiety and depression. I suspect that boys are doing terribly in the sense of having a sense of meaning or purpose in their life or a reason to work hard mm-hmm. or go to school or get married. But
0: if they're less... If boys are less on social media or less active Mm -hmm. on social media than girls are, then I wonder where that is coming from. I wonder if it's a combination of the overprotectiveness from parents, but also... Just the space, the headspace that the West yeah. is in. Well, so yeah,
1: so I mean, boys, you know, violence is way down in America, in particular. Mm. I think that's because we banned leaded gas around 1980, mm. and so in the 90s, teenage boys, teenage boys commit most of the crime, or young adult men commit most of the crime. Um, so in the 90s, we've had plummeting rates since the 90s, plummeting rates of violence. Um, young men are not generally very violent, mm. but what we're seeing, you know, if you have a couple a year who get an assault rifle and go into a church or a mosque Mm -hmm. or a shopping mall. I mean, this is big news. So I think here we don't want to look at what's happening to the average boy. Mm -hmm. We want to look at what's happening so that, you know, a few dozen um, of these, a few dozen boys a year are actually, or I don't know what the number is, but, you know, some number are actually committing violence. And there I think it would not happen, given the degree to which they refer to each other, the degree to which they refer to what Andres Breivik or whoever the Norwegian guy was who... Given, it's clear that they're connected and they couldn't be connected in this way without social media.
2: Right.
0: Uh, switching gears for a little bit, and I, I know we only have a few minutes. Um, I, I, I was very curious about your chapter on universities and the corporatization of universities yeah. and this sort of cr- creating an overprotective within the universities and treating students as customers, and the customer is always right. What My question for for you with regard to that chapter is what incentive, mm-hmm. given the fact that universities do face liability issues and liability threats, um, and do you want to incentivize students to come to their school? what incentive do yeah. universities have to change their paradigm from customer service to truth as it yeah. were?
1: So here I think we need the concept of a of a telos okay. a Telos, the Greek word Telos um, which is the, with the purpose uh, you know like the the telos of a knife is to cut. The telos of a doctor is to heal. The telos of a professor is to study or learn or, and then also teach. The telos of university is, well, I think it's to generate knowledge and pass it on. And... Um, Whereas the telos of business is to provide a good or service at at, at an affordable price, mm-hmm. and business the business way of thinking. Now that I moved to a business school in 2011, I've really come to have a lot of respect for the for the business mindset. Um, it's a way of looking at problems and getting the cost down and delivering better service and figuring out what people want, even if they don't know they want it. Mm-hmm. So there's a role for business. There's a role for universities. There's a role for doctors. We each should have our separate excellences, our separate skills. Now, in the 1980s, it began to be the case that business, that universities, there was a move to like put them on a more business footing, and this was happening throughout the economy. Okay. Everything should, you know, doctors should think more like business people, and you gain something, you gain some efficiency, but man, you lose something too. Um, so this is a long-term shift since the 1980s, the the spread of a market way of thinking, and I'm a big fan of market ways of thinking, except to the extent that they push out the central the the telos of of an institution Mm -hmm. um and that has i think to some extent happened when universities um are governed by metrics and Mm. when u.s news and world report ranks us all Mm. uh, administrators will do anything to get their u.s news ranking up and uh, if that means we got to keep the customers happy we got to get good ratings um so in a whole variety of ways Universities are these complex institutions with different incentives pulling different people in different directions, and there's a fair level of incoherence. Mm. There's still great scholarship going on, and, and, and there's still many great classroom teachers, and people still enjoy college. So, you know, it's, uh, I don't want to overstate our problems. Sure. Um, but I do, I do see a lack of people standing up for academic values nowadays people are afraid of bad publicity people are afraid to say no to students especially student movements or student groups and I think that we end up compromising a lot of our values
0: so I guess my final question would be what advice would you give to students who want to uh, pursue uh, education within the spirit of truth and the pursuit of truth who want to figure out how to live sort of a decent moral life Mm -hmm. and I don't know if you've read the book On Moderation by Harry Clore. No, it it's sounds v- great. It's a very good book. Okay, It's reminding me of this conversation. Um, but there are serious, I think, just existentially, there are serious yeah. things to be wrestled um, during the course of a life. I think that um, what we're dealing with the with, uh, with the... Uh, the spiritual but not religious uh, mm-hmm. atmosphere in society now is our is an inability to deal with our own mortality and to wrestle with that seriously and so taking all of these mm-hmm. factors into consideration what advice would you give to a yeah. student who is entering university who wants to pursue the good as it were but yeah. is pressured by multiple different factors to do otherwise
1: no thank you for that question that is an excellent question here's I think what I would say I'd say you want to make yourself strong in an age when many forces have prevented you and your generation from becoming strong. And you wanna make yourself smart at a time when many forces are preventing you from becoming smart. And what I mean by that is that we are anti-fragile. We need to be knocked around, have setbacks, experience stress, we need all these things tens of thousands of times in childhood before we can get strong enough to actually make a difference in the world and, and run our lives independently. And, and students have been so overprotected, especially in the United States and Canada. So I would urge them to seek out experiences. If a speaker's coming to campus and people say he's dangerous, go see him. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if, you, if you meet somebody, so so one, it's one about getting strong. Try to get yourself independent experiences, unsupervised experiences, experiences where you're a little bit nervous, where you mm-hmm. think it's a little beyond what you can do, and then seek those out. You got to make yourself strong because the adults around you your whole life have been protecting you and preventing you from becoming strong. That's the first thing. Second thing, uh, becoming wise or smart. The truth is really hard to find, mm. and it's a it's a lot harder to find now than it was ten or twenty years ago because passions are higher, and social media and the internet give us confirmation of every possible belief. So we now live in the Tower of Babel. We live in a in a in a crazy era um, in which it's very hard to find the truth. Also, partly, we now know that the scientific method is not as reliable as we thought just ten years ago. Oh, really? That a lot of, a lot of our publications in psychology and other social sciences, and even in uh, medical science and cancer research, things published in academic journals—somewhere between a quarter and a half of them don't replicate. Mm-hmm. So, even the scientific method is not as reliable as we thought. My larger point here is: you have to be humble. You have to beware of people who think they know and who want to draw you into their crusade to change the world based on what they think they know. Um, Activism is not automatically a good thing. Mm -hmm. Activism that is well-informed and that has some idea of a possible solution is good. But activism that is not well-informed is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. If you're pressuring institutions to change and you don't have good research and you don't really understand how things work, you should stop. Mm -hmm. You are not making things better. And so, Um, I think there's, so the the great example for me is the Parkland students. They were just wonderful. There was a horrible shooting um, a number of months later, a group of Parkland students from that high school in Florida, they came out with like a nine point plan for gun control and it was brilliant. I, I used to run a gun control group. They were really realistic. This is excellent, and I realize, you know, I've never seen this before. I've never seen a protest movement or a student group that that actually put out a really thoughtful analysis of the situation, and then they went to Tallahassee to advocate for it. Now, the political forces are so vast, they didn't succeed. Mm -hmm. But that, to my mind, is excellent student activism. Whereas, uh, you know, joining a mob to get a professor fired because he used a word that you don't like. I mean, please, just yeah. stop. You're not helping anyone. You're not making the world better. Yeah. You're just providing fodder for right-wing groups that hate universities and want to show how ridiculous you are.
0: I see. Well... John, thank you so much for your insight, your advice, and for joining the Theory of Enchantment podcast. Really My pleasure, Chloe. Oh,
1: well, thanks so much. I know, I know you. I, just from what I've seen on your website, it's clear that you actually know a lot more about common humanity uh, approaches than than I do. So I look forward <laughs> to learning more after after we turn off the microphones.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. The quote of the day comes from Toni Morrison. Let me tell you about love. That silly word you believe is about whether you like somebody or whether somebody likes you or whether you can put up with somebody in order to get something or someplace you want. Or you believe it has to do with how your body responds to another body like robins or bison. Or maybe you believe love is how forces or nature or luck is benign to you in particular, not maiming or killing you but if so, doing it for your own good. Love is none of that. There is nothing in nature like it, not in robins or bison or in the banging tails of your hunting dogs and not in blossoms or suckling foal. Love is divine only and difficult always. If you think it is easy, you are a fool. If you think it is natural, you are blind. It is a learned application without reason or motive except that it is God. You do not deserve love regardless of the suffering you have endured. You do not deserve love because somebody did you wrong. You do not deserve love just because you want it. You can only earn, by practice and careful contemplations, the right to express it. And you have to learn how to accept it, which is to say, you have to earn God. You have to practice God. You have to think God carefully. And if you are a good and diligent student, you may secure the right to show love. Love is not a gift. It is a diploma, a diploma conferring certain privileges the privilege of expressing love, and the privilege of receiving it. How do you know you have graduated? You don't. What you do know is that you are human, and therefore educable, and therefore capable of learning how to learn, and therefore interesting to God, who is only interested in himself, which is to say he is only interested in love. Do you understand me? God is not interested in you. He is interested in love. And the bliss it brings to those who understand and share the interests. Couples that enter the sacrament of marriage and are not prepared to go the distance or are not willing to get right with the real love of God cannot thrive. They may cleave together like robins or gulls or anything else that mates for life, but if they eschew this mighty course at the moment when all are judged for the disposition of their eternal lives, their cleaving won't mean a thing. God bless the pure and holy. Amen. I'm Chloe Valdery, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Theory of Enchantment podcast. I hope you enjoyed, and I hope you have a great weekend.